Scripture and turn uh, with me in the Psalter uh, to Psalm uh, 13. Psalm 13 will be our Scripture passage that we want to spend time uh, in uh, this evening. The uh, shorter Psalms, just six uh, verses there. Psalm Psalm 13. This is the living and abiding word of the Lord. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the beautiful songs we can sing. We thank you for times of prayer and we thank you, Lord, also uh, that uh, even as we have spoken to you in prayer, we know and believe that you speak to us. By your spirit, through your word, which is truth, and you sanctify us by the truth. And Lord, we need to be sanctified. We need to be set apart more and more, totally set apart for the service of the living God. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that you would be pleased to do that work, even tonight, uh, in us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, You can learn a lot from the first lines uh, of the Psalms. Uh, If you were to just go through the Psalter reading the first line, it would give you a pretty good indication of what you find. Psalm 1 started, blessed is the man who watched not in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, And so Psalm 1 sets out the the way of blessing. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? The peoples plot in vain. All of a sudden, we're cast into the uh, atmosphere of those who are uh, against uh, the Lord and against uh, against the king. Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes? There's enemies in life. Psalm 4, answer me when I call. O God of my righteousness, you've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Uh, the psalmist is in distress. Uh, the way of life, um, there's enemies against the king and against the people of God. There are foes to be fought. There is distress for the psalmist. And, uh, and on and on, the first line of the psalms. Go. And so when we came to uh, Psalm 10, uh, we had a question from the psalmist. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? That was a psalm that gives uh, expression to the thought that there are times in uh, life for the psalmist when the Lord seems distant uh, from him. 
And then Psalm 11.3, we read, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's times when things are all shaken and nothing seems to be certain. What are the righteous supposed to do? And then last Psalm started, save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. And so uh, there was the psalmist thinking that there, there's, there's no more righteous people, there's no more godly people at all. I'm, I'm all alone in my life with the Lord. And uh, the reason that's helpful is because it reveals to us the ups and downs of an ordinary life with God, uh, these psalms. And, uh, and that's important. And this psalm is no different uh, as David uh, begins this psalm four times asking, How long, O Lord? It is difficult, it is hard uh, to wait upon the Lord. Uh, one important thing to notice, of course, as we go through the psalms is that uh, it's not wrong to ask questions of God. Uh, the psalmist did it all the time. And uh, we're going to hear many questions. I like what R.C. Sproul wrote in his book, Choosing My Religion. He said this, Sometimes it's less important to have the right answers uh, than to have the right questions. American humorist Will Rogers said, It's not what you don't know that will get you in trouble, but what you know for certain that just ain't so. You need to think about that for a little bit. I think, said Sproul, non-Christians often don't ask religious questions because down deep inside they have a sneaking suspicion of what the answers might be and they don't like them. But Christians are also afraid of questions for the same reason, so they get into trouble. Or they're afraid other Christians will call them doubters if they are overheard asking the wrong question. They don't want to seem unspiritual or dumb. They also may be afraid God will lose patience with them, says Sproul, but God loves to answer questions, the dumber the better. Because he loves for us to have the ultimate truth we need to complete the sentence, I believe. He never loses patience with a question, and neither do people who are serving him. If you take a question to more mature Christians, those who really are men and women of God, you will likely find they don't think it's so dumb. Maybe they used to struggle with the same thing. Uh, maybe uh, they, still, they still do. So there's a lot of questions in the Psalms. And one of them is this one. Uh, how long? There's times when we are waiting upon the Lord. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sore in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Another way to phrase these first two verses would be uh, by using the word when. Or we could change it this way then. Lord, when will you remember uh, when will you show me your face? Uh, when will the sorrow in my soul end? When will my enemy be defeated? So you see here, it's a, it's a matter of, uh, the psalmist is struggling here with a matter of timing. A matter of timing. It's hard to wait upon the Lord. Which is probably why the psalmist mentions it uh, a number of times uh, throughout uh, the Psalter, really over and over again. So Psalm 27, 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Uh, wait uh, for the Lord. A lot of waiting in the Christian life. Psalm 31, 24, be strong and let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord. Psalm 33, 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help 
uh, and our shield. And then probably when you think about waiting, you probably think uh, of perhaps uh, the prophet Isaiah, uh, who we know most uh, famously uh, wrote these words in Isaiah 40, verse 30. Even youths shall faint, even young people will faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's a common theme through the scripture. Now for David, what is he waiting for? Well, it's clear his struggle uh, is in uh, three areas. He's struggling uh, with his relationship to God. He's struggling uh, with his relationship to himself within. And he's struggling in his relationship uh, with others. Uh, so that kind of that kind of covers everything, doesn't it? Relationship to God, his own relationship within himself, and his relationship with uh, with others. His struggle with the Lord is described this way: How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face uh, from me? Could be translated this way: uh, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Um, Stop. Forever? You know? Forever? Um, So clearly, the psalmist here has been struggling a long time. A long time. He's he's weary. And, uh, And he's saying to the Lord, when will you remember and look upon me? Uh, Of course, this is what the Lord did when his people were in bondage in Egypt in the book of Exodus. Uh, He uh, he sees them. He sees their bondage. He hears their cry, right? And he acts. And uh, so here, David is saying, "When will you remember and look upon upon me?" Now, this is really is this is the language of personal friendship. When will you look upon me? When will you remember me? This is the language of personal friendship, David and the Lord. Uh, Perhaps you've known the pain yourself of waiting for a phone call from a friend that never comes. Or longing to see someone you love whom you've not seen for a long time. And uh, this was often David's longing uh, simply to, to see the Lord or for the Lord to reveal himself to him. For the Lord to, to show his face to David. And so the thought of the Lord hiding his face from David uh, is a painful thing. For him, because the Lord's hiding his face from someone, of course, in the Bible, uh, brings with a thought of the Lord withholding his blessing. Because you'll remember uh, the uh, ironic blessing in the book of Numbers is the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance or his face towards you and give you his peace. And so for David and his relationship to the Lord, this is a great struggle. Uh, when will the Lord look to him again? Stuart Townend wrote that wonderful hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, How Vast Beyond All Measure, That He Should Give His Only Son to Make a Wretch His Treasure. How Great the Pain, wrote Townsend, How Great the Pain of Searing Loss, The Father Turns His Face Away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. How great the pain, he's trying to express there, this pain of searing loss when on the cross 
uh, where the Father turns the face away, turns his blessing away from the Son, as the Son experiences the full wrath of God uh, for the sins uh, of, of men. So that's what David's struggling with. Will you forget me, Lord, forever? Will I ever know uh, your, your shining face of blessing again on my life? Struggle with God and, of course, struggle with self. Notice what he says, verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart uh, all the day? This is uh, David expressing this turmoil of thought within. When he talks about uh, taking counsel in my soul, he's talking about having a you know, conversation within. And, he, and he's struggling within, in his own mind and in his own heart. The d- idea here is this deep agonizing of soul. He's not knowing what to think. Not knowing what to do, not knowing what to feel. Uh, it could be translated, he's, he sets plan after plan before his mind, but he can't. He doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know which way to turn uh, or what to do. And so there's inner turmoil. And then, of course, there's struggle with others. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, of course, we know David had a lot of enemies, usually in the Psalms. We think of Saul. We think of, uh, we think of uh, uh, David's son. Chasing him down. Um, and so those are two, two normal places to go. We don't know exactly what David's referring to here. Could have been a threat to David's throne. Could have been a physical threat. Could have been a revolt uh, against uh, David. But in either case, his enemy is being exalted and David is cast uh, down. But when you think enemy here, all you have to think about is uh, it just means those opposed. Those in opposition to me. Um, how long shall my opposition be exalted over me? Uh, you ever had that? Someone who simply, no matter what you said, no matter what you did, it seemed that they were opposed to you. You might be trying to be as kind, as loving as possible to them, but there's just a sense that they are, they are set in opposition to you. That's what an enemy is. We don't have to think about those trying to kill us. It just means those who are set against someone. That's why in the New Testament, um, you know, the great encouragement in the book of Romans is, if God is for us, right, who can be against us? An enemy is just something, someone against you. And so this then is, is David's struggle, his relationship to God, his relationship to his own thinking, and his relationships uh, to, to others. Said one commentator, in turn, we've got divine remoteness, personal indecision and uncertainty, and we've got human enmity. Um, the causes of potential breakdown are supernatural, personal, and circumstantial. What a recipe, <laughs> says this commentator. He's got theological problems. He's got psychological problems, and he's got sociological problems. All his relationships are intention. How long? How long? You think about marriages, pray for a marriage tonight. Think about family, tension in the family. Think about it at school, think about it at work, think about it in the church. How long? These, these struggles. Think about Revelation 6.10 where the martyrs, um, uh, the martyrs cry out, How long, O Lord, before you judge the peoples of the earth? It's hard to wait 
upon the Lord. So what does David do in this struggle? Uh, he's waiting on the Lord. Uh, he's also, we find him, of course, uh, praying to the Lord. Consider an answer in verse 3. O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him. Let my foes rejoice uh, because I am shaken. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. So despite this struggle, this momentous struggle with God within himself and others, despite the sadness, despite the turmoil, the child of God here in Psalm 13 is not driven from the Lord, uh, but he is driven to the Lord. Said one, if your troubles are deep-seated or long-standing, try kneeling. I thought that was kind of clever, right? If your troubles are deep-seated, long-standing, try kneeling. Said John Bunyan, prayer, speaking with the Lord, is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge. For Satan, oh, how Satan, how the evil one hates to see us pray, hates to see us appeal to the Lord. Uh, um, Oh, Lord, my God. Did you catch that? Wait a minute. He's just talked about, he's, he's just said to the Lord, will you forget me forever? And then he turns to the Lord and says, oh, Lord, my God. God. Remember the anguish of Jesus on the cross, quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The next verse in Psalm 22 is this, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. David here in this tumultuous struggle, how long, uh, the Bible says he cries out uh, to my God. And so we pray our Father who is in heaven. But notice this. O Lord, my God. In the Bible, when someone says my God, it is a cry of faith. It is not a common curse word. How sad, how sad and how far we are from the worldview of the Word of God. When in our culture, the, uh, the, the OMG is so flippant. And of course, there's the so-called Christian substitute of, of gosh. Who do we think we're really kidding when we use that expression? I mean, it's a matter of our heart. Changing a letter or two doesn't change the fact that You're taking a solemn expression of faith and trust in the sovereign God, my God, and changing it to an expression of surprise, devoid of God. Whatever comes out of your mouth. How far we've come. What is David's prayer to my God? Well, his prayer is this. Send Send light. Light up, he says. Light up my eyes. Enlighten my eyes. 
There's a way in the Bible that um, this can refer to physically someone being weary. So Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, Saul makes this, this oath that if anyone eats anything that day, they should be put to death. It's a terrible oath. And Jonathan eats some honey uh, that he finds. And the Bible says it brightened his eyes. And so there's a way the Bible talks about that in a, in a physical way, that health is being restored when uh, your eyes are enlightened. But more often in the Scripture, uh, when the Scripture talks or when there's a cry to have eyes enlightened, uh, and here with David as well, the idea is that spiritually David is, is praying that the Lord would somehow help him to see things as they truly are. Light up my eyes, Lord, so I might truly see. Send light. I think of the, uh, the prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Ephesian church when he's praying uh, for a living, breathing church, professing faith in Jesus. And this is what he prays in Ephesians 1. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What does he pray for people who know? He's heard about their faith. He's heard about their love. So it's not that they're unbelievers, uh, but he does pray this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. And then he says this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So yes, you professing believer, I'm praying that your eyes would be enlightened, that you would see the light of what? That you may know, you may know this, what's the hope to which he's called you? What are the riches, not the puny drip drops, but the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You don't, you don't, you don't see that enough. You don't, you don't believe that enough. Where, where you're going, where you're headed, you need to see the glorious riches of the inheritance of the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And so Paul prays for the enlightening of the eyes of believers, namely that they would see all the things they only see so dimly. They would see it anew. It's true of every believer, of course. The Lord has to enlighten our eyes. That's what we read from 2 Corinthians 4. It takes the work of the Spirit of God. For you to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Without that, you have no joy. You have no love for the Lord. You have no desire to live for Him unless the Holy Spirit helps you to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So don't, do you not know what to pray for sometimes? Struggling in your relationship to God. Maybe a struggle within your soul, not knowing which way to turn. Maybe your heart's in turmoil and you, you put all sorts of plans in your mind, not sure which way to go. Maybe there's an enemy, an adversary, someone who seems to always be opposed to you. Pray, O oh Lord, light up my eyes. Help me see. Many stories were told in Scotland of the 
uh, debating powers of a young George Gillespie as seen on the floor of the Westminster Assembly. George Gillespie was one of six Church of Scotland ministers who were commissioners to the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s. Uh, John Selden uh, was a member of the House of Commons who was present at the assembly. They were able to be present. They could argue and so forth. He was one of the greatest lawyers, apparently, in England. Uh, He made a speech one day uh, about the relationship of church and state that both friend and foe felt was unanswerable. Uh, They also believed it was wrong. And one after another tried to reply to Selden's speech, but failed. Samuel Rutherford said to George Gillespie, Rise, Rise, George. Uh, he was another commissioner, Rutherford. Uh, he said that to Gillespie, who was sitting with his pencil and notebook beside him. Rise, George, said Rutherford. Defend the church which Christ has purchased with his own blood. So George Rose spoke for a long time, refuting, apparently, Selden. And we know that because, apparently, when he sat down, Selden is reported to have said to someone who was sitting beside him, that young man, George Gillespie, Uh, has swept away the learning and labor of ten years of my life. And so uh, Gillespie's fellow uh, Scotsman, uh, after that speech, uh, grabbed his notebook to preserve, send home, uh, you know, at least the heads of his magnificent speech. Uh, But they all found in his little book were these three words. All they found were these three words in Latin. Da lucem domine. Give life, O Lord, over and over again. All our efforts are without hope and answers fail. Speeches, sermons, talks to children, friends, neighbors will not avail unless the Lord sends light. And especially when we're in the midst of of struggle, waiting upon the Lord. Waiting upon the Lord, praying to the Lord. And of course, then at the end of this psalm, it's only six verses, but at the end of this psalm, all of a sudden, uh, we find David rejoicing in the Lord. How does that happen? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me? Forever? And then ends this way. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord uh, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Uh, all commentators say this I here in verse 5. You can see it too in the English. It's an emphatic. But I, but I, for my part, uh, have trusted in your steadfast love. Writes Derek Kidner. However great the pressure, the choice is still his to make, not the enemy's. And God's covenant remains. So the psalmist entrusts himself to this pledged love and turns his attention not to the quality of his faith, but to its object and its outcome, which he has every intention uh, of uh, enjoying. Now, different commentators on this passage try to bring out this uh, amazing swing of mood that occurs for David in this psalm. So if you check the commentaries... The heading for this psalm, uh, you'll find headings like this. Desolation to delight. You'll find headings like this. Anguish to assurance. Despair uh, to trust. Misery to hope. And the question, of course, is how do you get 
from the intense struggle, the sense of sadness and turmoil being forgotten by God at a loss within your own soul under the heel of an enemy, how do you get from there to trusting, rejoicing, and singing? This is kind of like uh, complaining that you can't ice skate. I don't know how to skate very well. I know it's a shame. I'm a Canadian. It's shameful. I'm shameful even to admit it to you tonight. But I cannot ice skate. Uh, But it's like complaining you can't ice skate. Skates don't fit. Everyone's uh, skating circles around you. You've fallen on the ice and nobody cares. Going from that state to being all of a sudden you're a, uh, you're going to have to, you're going to have to, I don't know if any of you remember, to going to be a, a Dorothy Hamill, let's say, or a, a Bruce Boycano, uh, maybe. Uh, I've got Canadian figure skaters in mind, but those are some Americans. I don't know if you know them. Uh, or, or going from, from that state of mind, can't skate, just, yeah, to a Wayne Gretzky, maybe, uh, you know, skating up and down the ice doing backwards, you know. That's what came to mind as I uh, meditated on this song. How do you get from uh, those depths to singing? Well, what's done it for David? Well, what's done it for David? What is the pivot upon which everything changes? The Lord has sent light. The Lord has sent light. How do we know that? Because we see in verse 5 and 6 that all of a sudden, what David sees is no longer his struggle. What he sees is, first of all, he sees the steadfast love of the Lord. That is, that covenant faithfulness, that hesed, that covenant mercy of the Lord. That's what David sees now. He also uh, sees the, uh, the salvation of the Lord. He sees that he is a sinner and that his salvation is only, uh, is only, only comes through the Lord himself. And he sees anew that the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. It could be translated this way. He has, he has cared so completely for me. His steadfast love, I see it. His salvation has come to me. And He has cared for me so completely. He has dealt so bountifully with me. And that's what changes everything for David as the Lord sends light. In his book, The Trinitarian Doctrine, or Trinitarian Devotion of John Owen, Sinclair Ferguson writes this, What is paramount and striking in John Owen's thinking is that being a Christian... Think of this as what it means for you. Being a Christian, said Ferguson of Owen, involves a deep affection for Jesus Christ. Love for Him. He's a person to be known, admired, and loved. Fellowship with Christ, therefore, involves a mutual resignation or self-giving between ourselves and Him. There is endless, said Owen, endless, bottomless, boundless grace and compassion. In Christ. A fullness of grace in the human nature of Christ of such proportions that says Owen in a stunning outburst as Ferguson of wonder and praise. This is what John Owen writes. If all the world, if I may so say, said Owen, set themselves to drink free grace, mercy, and pardon, drawing water continually from the wells of salvation. Think about this imagery. 
everybody drinking continually from the wells of salvation. If they should set themselves to draw from one single promise, all that we could, from one single promise, an angel standing by and crying, Drink, oh my friends, drink abundantly, take so much grace and pardon as shall be abundantly sufficient for the world of sin which is in every one of you. They would not, says Ellen, if we all did that, just drank as much as we could from that one promise. They would not, says Ellen, be able to sink the grace of the promise one hair's breadth. There is enough for millions of worlds, if they were, because it flows into it from an infinite, bottomless fountain. We cannot spread our sins, says Ferguson, further than he can spread his grace And to meditate on this, to taste the waters of such a pure fountain, is surely to know joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is what takes us, friends, from desolation to delight, from anguish to assurance, from rejection to uh, rejoicing, seeing the light. Seeing his steadfast love for what it is. Seeing his salvation to us come fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. And seeing how he has dealt so bountifully with me. And so gracious. So my anguish turns to assurance. And my desolation turns to delight. And my rejection turns to, turns to rejoicing. We all at times are waiting upon the Lord. Struggles with God, struggles within ourselves, and struggles with others. The answer, the Bible says, is found in praying to the Lord, send me light. Light up my eyes, help me to see things as they really are. And when he sends the light, that will lead you to rejoicing in the Lord, because you've seen anew his faithfulness, he is the covenant God, his salvation, Jesus has come. And His bountiful, boundless, complete, overwhelming grace and mercy to you. Which will lead you to sing this psalm. Let me give you this psalm that's in our hymnal. It's paraphrased for us to sing. We're not going to sing it tonight. But let me read it to you to close. Psalm 13, paraphrased 641 in our hymnal. It goes like this. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, thou God of grace? How long shall fears beset me while darkness hides thy face? How long shall griefs distress me and turn my day to night? How long shall foes oppress me and triumph in their might? O Lord my God, behold me and hear my earnest cries. Lest sleep of death enfold me, enlighten thou mine eyes. Lest now my foe insulting should boast of his success. And enemies exulting rejoice in my distress. But I with expectation on thy grace rely. My heart in thy salvation shall still with joy confide, and I with voice of singing, with praise the Lord above, who richest bounties bringing, has dealt with me in love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the, the psalms that we have, and thank you, Lord, that even as we read such a short psalm, Lord, how we can uh, relate to the psalmist. 
Lord, perhaps things we haven't related to anybody else, even to our family members, but Lord, knowing in our own hearts, our struggle, wondering how long, uh, O oh Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that in those times of waiting upon you for whatever it might be, in whatever struggle it is for us tonight, Lord, that we, like David, would turn to you to cry out, O oh Lord, my God, send light, light up my eyes, help me to see, dear God, again tonight. At uh, the beginning of this month of December, help me uh, again uh, to see, oh Lord, your steadfast love, your mercy, your salvation which has come to me in Jesus Christ, and how you have cared so completely for me, uh, how you've dealt so bountifully with me, that you have indeed uh, given me light to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, that I might sing. Your praises. Help us, Lord, tonight. That we might know you better. That we might love you more. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.